Howdy gamers and welcome to the 5 by your source for rapid fire board game reviews. In this episode, Ruth visits some shops in Doxu, Sarah scatters dandelion seeds in Dandelions, Meeple Lady develops a civilization in Mega Civilization, and I try to keep my kite in the sky in Kites. We also have a classic segment, Sprawlopolis from Laura. But first, here's Ruth. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, taking the chance to talk about a game that I would love to see return to local game store shelves. J. Alex Kevern has designed a number of well-regarded games, many of which have been covered on this very podcast, including Gold West, Prowler's Passage, and Sentient. One of his less mentioned games is actually one of my favorites, 2015's Daxu. Now sadly out of print, and in my opinion a game that desperately needs to make a triumphant return. Published by White Goblin Games with art by Clemens Franz, this is a two-player set collection game that uses hidden action selection to force players to anticipate their opponent's decisions and counter appropriately. Players vie to have the highest number of cards associated with a particular market stall, but must do so carefully, as the closer they are to their opponent's total, then the more points they'll earn for the majority. Setting up Daxu is simple. A central board sits between the players, with spaces on each side representing six types of market stall, and a reputation track running down the center. Eight shop cards are then randomly dealt to each player to give them some initial influence within the market. Once they've placed those cards into the appropriate stall areas, they'll place their reputation marker on the track and pick up their action cards to start the game. The two sets of action cards represent the four possible responses to the three cards that will be flipped over to start each round. A player can decide to give the cards to the other player, to take the cards for themselves, to cooperate and therefore accept their opponent's choice, or to undermine, doing the exact opposite of whatever their opponent played. Playing a cooperate or undermine card also affects the player's reputation depending on how well they're seen to be behaving within the market. So each round consists of players examining a set of three cards and then secretly choosing what to do with them. Once both have chosen, the action cards are revealed and resolved. If both cards match, then the resolution will depend on the player's respective reputation levels for give or take, while matching cooperate or undermine cards will result in another shop card being revealed and the players repeating the action selection process until the cards can be assigned to someone. Reputations will be adjusted for actions played, and also if anyone received a card that shows a change, and then the goods will be placed next to the winning player's stalls and the next round begins. Once players can no longer reveal a full set of three cards to start the round, they'll move to final scoring. The market stalls are scored first, with the first three using what the rulebook refers to as a more forgiving score chart, while the other three are much more rewarding. Basically, getting the majority in a stall by a single card is going to earn you the most points. Winning by a few cards will get a lower point value, and winning by too many cards will cause you to lose a point for being too greedy, while your opponent then earns one point per card of the type that they were able to collect. Players will score each stall in turn, removing the cards as they go, and using those cards to form a face-down score pile to track their points. Face-down action cards can even be used to represent a negative point if needed, letting you accurately keep track without the need for scoring tokens or for another track on that board. Once all the stalls have been scored, players will then earn or lose points depending on their final reputation and then declare the winner. Like many of the best two-player games, every decision you make in Daxu involves trying to figure out what your opponent wants and how they intend to get it. 
However, since you're both doing that, you find yourself trying to predict how they'll be trying to counteract your decision and figuring out what might sway that choice your way before wondering if they'll just say screw it and go for the obvious, thinking that you'll overthink it. And so you hem and you haw and you eventually choose a card and you hope to whatever force you care about that maybe it'll all work out. And when it does, it's amazing. When it doesn't, it's still fun. Deciding when to focus on reputation versus cards adds another wrinkle, and at least in my games, the endgame scores tend to be tight enough that the urge to just reshuffle and set up another round in order to do better is almost always there. And luckily, the game is short enough to do so. It's also a pretty decent looking game. The art from Clem and Franz is perfectly nice, though it's not exactly my favorite style of board game art. The trifold central board is sturdy and folds down small enough to fit in the type of square two-player box familiar to fans of games such as Patchwork. This makes it extremely portable, though once the cards start to come out it does take up a decent amount of table space, so this may not be the best game for playing in cafes or more cramped locales. That being said, it's been a good one for brewery outings in my experience. Easy enough to play while having a conversation and a good drink, since you don't have to track a bunch of hidden information or plan multiple moves ahead. Daxu is an attractive game with decent components full of tricky decisions and the need to figure out not just how to play the game, but how to play against your particular opponent. It plays well with players at different skill levels, and the included reference cards are well designed to ensure players can figure out how to resolve particular combinations of action cards without having to keep going to the rules. As I mentioned, it's one of my favorite two-player games, and one I'd love to see get a re-release to let more people experience. Until that long-desired day, I can only strongly suggest grabbing any chance to play Daxu that comes along. Until next time, feel free to let me know your favorite two-player game. You can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's and an F. Thanks for listening. Imagine what it would be like to be the seeds of a dandelion carried away by the wind. That isn't a guided meditation exercise. It's one of the setup instructions for the game Dandelions. In Dandelions, you play a dandelion. You roll 11 dice and use them to move your pawn around a circular track, which represents dandelion seeds floating on the wind. If the space where you would stop is already occupied by another pawn, you get to jump ahead by doubling your move as if the seed was lifted up and carried away by a current of wind. When you finally come to rest, you leave a die in that location, and each location is marked from 1 to 8. This could represent the seeds falling to earth on more or less hospitable spots in the soil, or maybe I'm thinking too hard about the theme. In any case, that's basically it. You take turns moving around the track, leaving dice as you go, until all your dice are gone. Now, before you dismiss Dandelions as a filler game with no strategic interest, there are a couple of wrinkles in the scoring that make things more interesting. First of all, you score two ways. First, there's Sprout, where each die scores for the value of its location, not the pip value. Locations range in value from 1 to 8, but the higher value locations have fewer spaces to land in. Then there's Seed, where whoever has the most dice in each location gets to score the pip values of all their dice in that location. If you're having trouble getting into the high-value locations, you could instead try to cluster dice with fives and sixes to score points that way. To make things even more interesting, during play, if you place a die in a location where your opponents have dice of the same pip value, you can move those dice to the next location, which could represent the seeds... you know what? I got nothing. I tried to think of how this would relate to dandelion seeds, but it doesn't. It just makes the game more fun. Just roll with it. 
The obvious move is to push dice into a lower scoring location, but you might also choose to move them to a higher scoring location, if that would break up a big group of their dice and prevent them from getting the seed score. The initial dice roll does bring a fair amount of luck into the game, since a player who rolled all ones and twos would probably score much lower than someone who rolled all fives and sixes. But whenever you land on the starting space, you re-roll all your unplayed dice. This gives you a chance to make a fresh start if you hated your initial roll, or if you just used up all your high-value dice and want to gamble on maybe getting more. Dandelions is a retheme of Takashi Sakawa's 2013 game Birth, which was published in Japan by Product Arts and was not easy to find in the US. The rules are almost the same, though simplified. Birth includes a number of rules variations that are not present in Dandelions. I haven't played Birth, but I love the spareness of Dandelions, how simple and carefree it feels. I'm inclined to think that if they kept the rules that worked the best and dropped everything else, that was probably a good decision. Dandelions was published in 2022 by Board Game Tables, my copy just arrived, and is part of a series that includes Mountain Goats, GPS, and Sequoia, none of which I have played, so I can't comment on how well Dandelions fits into the set. But the component quality is as good as you would expect from board game tables. Chunky wooden pawns, thick boards with glossy bright colors for the play area, and a dry erase board complete with pen and eraser for scoring. One of my few criticisms of Dandelions is actually about the art. The illustrations by Anka Gavriel and Daniel Profiri are lovely, colorful nature scenes on each board. But they don't convey dandelions. The colors don't seem like dandelion colors, and some of the nature scenes aren't even in places where dandelions would grow. And while one of the player colors is yellow, good, that's a dandelion color, the other two are pastel green and pale peach, which kind of made me wonder if dandelions are different in different parts of the world. This is a minor quibble, almost not worth mentioning. I just have to wonder why the player colors in dandelions are not the colors of a dandelion. My other critique isn't really a criticism per se, more of an unfortunate circumstance, which is that I think the game plays better at three. At least, the play style is much more to my liking. But I almost never play games with more than two people. With two players, Dandelions is both less interactive and more cutthroat, because any take that move is always against the same person. I've played three-player games by myself several times just to see what would happen, And with three pawns on the board, there's much more of the float mechanism, skipping ahead, that is one of the best sources of fun in Dandelions. The choices are also much more interesting with so many more dice on the board. I have to admit, the solo games with three pawns are at least as much fun for me as the two-player games with a human opponent. That said, even at two players, Dandelions is a great deal of fun. It's light and quick. In fact, the box says 15 minutes to play, and for once, that's accurate. Dandelions is a great game to relax and take a break with between heavier games, or just to while away time. It feels almost effortless to play, like blowing the seeds of a dandelion. And that's Dandelions. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other great Japanese two-player games that are getting US release. Then I really want to hear from you. Here on The 5 by we review a variety of games, old and new and everything in between. One thing, though, we don't do is review games that are out of print or extremely difficult to get a hold of. But this next game might fall in the gray area. The reason I'm talking about it is because I think more and more people are re-attending board game conventions, and an opportunity might present itself to sign up for this game, to which I say yes, you absolutely should sign up for a game of Mega Civilization. 
Mega Civilization, which came out in 2015, is a mega version of the legendary development game Civilization. Megasiv, which was designed by Flo de Haan, John Rodriguez, and Francis Tresham, plays 5 to 18 people for 360 to 720 minutes. For those who don't want to do the math, this game can last up to 12 hours. It's a type of game that can be spread out over two days during a convention, or just power through one very long day that starts very early. But don't let those numbers scare you. There's little downtime during the game, and it's quite an epic gaming experience. After all, it plays 5 to 18 people. So how exactly does that work? Well, there's map boards that just keep being added to the game, depending on the player count. But what is Mega Civilization? Boiled down in its simplest terms, players are different ancient civilizations trying to grow and advance on the archaeological succession table by improving their technology and building cities. This massive game comes in a wooden box containing multiple map boards, a census tract board, and the AST board. Each player has 55 population chits, 9 city chits, and 4 boats, and a player aid. The wooden box comes also with 840 trade cards, either for Western or Eastern games, and depending on which set of goods you want to use. It also comes with 724 Civilization Advances. Those are technology cards that give you abilities, or to help mitigate calamities as you advance your civilization. Megasiv may look daunting, but any gamer with some hobby experience can pick it right up. Unless you hate negotiating, then this game is most definitely not for you. Negotiating is a large component of this game. Players pick one civilization to play, and while each civilization starts with the same amount of resources, they're all geographically different and that can factor into population expansion and calamities. Each round has the same sequence of play. Tax collection, population expansion, movement, conflict, city construction, trade cards acquisition, trade, calamity selection, calamity resolution, special abilities, surplus population and city support, civilization advances acquisition, and AST alternation. Players start with a stack of chits in their home city, and then they move as each population chit can only move one space at a time. As they control more locations, their population grows more, as each location can only grow one to two chits at a time during population growth. When you move six chits into a space on the map, you can trade in those chits to form a city. But that means you'll have fewer population chits on the map to grow later. So if you build your cities too early, you'll be hampered by slow population growth. But cities are important. The more cities you have, the more trade cards you'll acquire. During trade card acquisition, you'll receive one card per city you have. If you have three cities, you'll get a one, two, and three card which represents various goods. Collecting multiple goods of the same type means they'll be higher in value so that you can trade them in for technology cards, which enable you to break some of the gaming rules or offer protection from calamities. Technology cards also allow you to reach certain thresholds to move you along the AST track. So how do you get more trade good cards? By negotiating. This is where it gets really fun. During negotiation, which is usually a fixed amount of time like 10 minutes, Players get to negotiate trades between themselves. They must trade exactly three cards and be honest with at least the first two cards. That third card? Who knows? It could be a zero card, but more than likely it'll be a calamity. You'll need to trade with each other to collect sets, so it's an inevitable fate. But that's okay. Calamities are divided into major and minor events, and ones that you can and cannot trade away. If you receive a calamity during trading, you should try your hardest to trade it away if you can. When trading ends and you're left with calamities, the person running the game will go down the list of calamities 
and people will flip over the card one at a time. Calamities trigger in a specific order, and while you may receive the brunt of its effects, it can very well affect many others. Will a flood wipe out your cities or civil disorder reduce them? Anything can happen. After that, you can purchase your technology cards with the trading cards you've collected. The technologies themselves are like a giant tech tree and color-coded. As you purchase cards from one type, they can offer discounts for the next advancement or other types of cards. The first few rounds go quickly as people's civilizations are still small and there aren't too many battles, much less calamities. But after a few rounds, each round starts to get longer and longer as people have more decisions to make and the calamities start coming. Oh, the calamities! There's never a dull moment in Megasiv and the game keeps everyone engaged all the time. It is an experience unlike any other. If you have the stamina to play an all-day game, I'd highly recommend it. Just make sure you pick a good civilization to start with. P.S. There are guides on BGG that can help with that. And that's Mega Civilization. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or TikTok as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Greetings, listeners. I recently attended Gen Con for the first time since 2019, and I was really out of the loop on new releases this year, so I was just strolling around and taking it all in. I don't usually buy a ton of games at Gen Con, especially if I don't know anything about them, but this year a game called Kites by Floodgate Games really jumped out at me. I actually do fly kites as a side hobby, so of course it had that appeal but also the concept by designer Kevin Hamano and art by Beth Sobel really made it a no-brainer for me. Kites is a short cooperative game in which your kites are represented by colored sand timers. Six sand timers to be exact, each with different amounts of sand ranging from 30 seconds to 90 seconds. The idea is that the sand timers are your kites flying in the sky and your goal is to keep them all going for the duration of the game. If any of the timers run out, your kite falls out of the sky, and that's your lose condition. Kites comes with a deck of cards depicting the various colors of kites. On your turn, you play a card and flip the corresponding timer. That's the basic game right there. If you can play through the whole deck without any timers running out, you win. That being said, there are some wrinkles. Wrinkle number one, some of the cards have two colors on them, and when you play those cards, you must flip both timers. Sometimes this results in sticky situations where you really have to flip a particular color, and your only card that has that color also has a color that you don't want to flip, so by solving one problem you create a new one. Wrinkle number two, the wild timer. There is a white sand timer that is considered wild. You can play a single kite of any color to flip the wild timer. Usually any kind of wild anything in a board game is the easiest option to manage, but I have found that I often get laser focused on the colored timers because they match the cards in my hand, and it can be easier than you'd think to just forget about the white timer. So you gotta keep that white timer going. Wrinkle number three. Speaking of the white timer, once the deck runs out, you have to finish playing your cards in hand without being able to flip the wild timer again. So you have at most 60 seconds to get rid of all your cards at the end of the game. I love games like Kites that are dead simple to learn, quick to play and try again if you lose, and flexible with player count. It goes from 2 to 6. The art on the cards looks great, and it draws the attention of people around you because the action is easy to follow. You can break this out with extended family at Christmas, coworkers at lunch, whatever it happens to be. Component-wise, obviously the sand timers are going to last a lot longer than the cards, but I don't know if I want to sleeve something so casual, so I'll have to think on that. 
Tweet at me at d6cmarie on Twitter and tell me if I should sleeve my copy of Kites. At any rate, this game is going to be similar to other timed co-ops such as Magic Maze or Fuse, in which you're going to try to beat it with a particular group of people, and as soon as you do, you'll probably feel like you're done and you'll move on to something else. Which brings us to wrinkle number four, challenge cards. Like any timed co-op worth its salt, Kites has a way to increase and customize the difficulty level for your group so that once you've beaten the basic game, you can spice things up and play again. You have an airplane card that temporarily bans talking, a card that makes all players swap some of their cards with one another, and a storm card that flips all the timers. Kites comes with several copies of each of these cards, and you can put as many or as few of them in the deck as you want. And if you want to make it easier instead of harder, you can take out the orange and purple sand timers and cards. Even with the challenge cards, the replayability of Kites is going to depend on what your group thinks of it. As with most timed games, Kites may not be everyone's cup of tea. But for what it's worth, my husband, who often feels stressed out by games with timers, said this one was more tolerable than others he's tried, probably because its lightness makes it less taxing and the theme is non-threatening. I've been enjoying it at Floodgate if you're listening, next year I want a Kites enamel pin, okay? I know it's not as big of a game as Sagrada, but let's make it happen. Kites is not a game that is going to keep you busy for very long, but it's a lot of fun and it's really accessible. Speaking of fun, I have been contributing to the 5x for three years now, and sadly, it's time for me to move on. I've enjoyed podcasting a great deal, and it has been a privilege to share alongside the other 5x hosts, who I'd like to thank, both for all their many contributions to the podcast and for having me be a part of it. Cheers to you all, and thanks so much as always for listening. everyone, it's Laura. Way back in 2018, Buttonshy published Brawlopolis, an 18-card city-building game designed by Stephen Aramini, Danny Devine, and Paul Kluka, with artwork by Danny Devine. I backed it on Kickstarter because the theme appealed to me, a co-op game where you get to be city planners designing a metropolis. Also, it supports one to four players, and any game with a solo mode is a huge plus for me. I figured it would be an easy and relaxing experience, just laying down some cards to build tiny cities from scratch. What I didn't realize is how much variability and depth an 18-card game can offer. To win Sprolopolis, you need to build a city that meets the challenging requirements of city officials. Each card is divided into four rectangular quadrants, representing city blocks, with exactly one block of each zone type. Industrial, residential, commercial, and park. Each card also has one or two roads that start and end on the edge of the card so you can connect them to roads on other cards. At the beginning of the game, you'll remove three cards from the deck and flip them over to reveal the requirements of city officials, aka scoring conditions. For example, Morning Commute gets you two points for each road that passes through both a residential block and a commercial block. The number 16 printed at the top of that card relates to the win condition. You add it to the values listed on the other two cards and the total is the minimum score you need to win. For example, if the three scoring condition cards had the values 1, 2, and 5, then my final score would have to be 8 or higher to win. There are also a couple of scoring conditions that apply to every game. For example, you lose one point for each road, so you want to connect them whenever possible. You also want to create a large cluster of each zone type to score additional points. The rulebook provides variants on these rules so you can adjust the game difficulty, which I always appreciate. So enough about scoring, let's talk about actual gameplay. On your turn, you choose one card from the three in your hand to play. If it's not a solo game, you hand the remaining two cards to the next player and draw a card for your next turn. 
that all sounds easy, let me add one more thing. You don't just place cards next to each other, you can overlap one or more city blocks with a new card, and that increases possible plays exponentially. A typical turn goes like this. You stare at the three cards in your hand trying to figure out which one to play, then stare at the cards already played, then stare at the three scoring conditions. Repeat that process in any order about, oh, five to 47 times. Maybe it's closer to the beginning of the game, and two of the scoring conditions have to do with what's placed at the edge of the city, but you're not sure if any of the cards on the table will or should form one of the edges. You're about to put down a card, then realize the roads won't match up how you need them to, so you'll have to overlap a couple of existing blocks to make them line up, but then that would cut your largest industrial area in half. You're also acutely aware that time is ticking away, and so you decide to go for it and hope that it all works out in the end. Some of the best moments in Sprawlopolis happen when you think there's no good move to make. You're fiddling with your cards, apologizing to your teammates, when suddenly a light bulb goes off in your head. If you take this card here and overlap it there, you've just turned two roads into one and increased the size of your largest residential area and nabbed two points for one of the scoring conditions. Not only is it incredibly satisfying when this happens, but you feel smart. And I love games that make me feel smart. It's also incredibly satisfying to create or co-create a city from scratch. If you're a fan of Carcassonne or other games with a map building mechanic, Sprolopolis gives you that same feeling in 15 to 20 minutes, unless things are going terribly wrong, and you can only shake your head at the Frankenstein of a city you've just created. It can go either way. I reach for Sprolopolis when I only have time for a filler, but want a puzzly game that will give my brain a solid workout. It works great solo or co-op. In fact, it's my most played solo game over the past six months. And if you tend to avoid co-op games due to the potential for quarterbacking, the rules help prevent this by not allowing players to show their hands. Plus, you have one card that's known only to you, the one you drew after your last turn, and this information prevents other players from insisting they know the quote-unquote right move to make. In terms of component quality, the cards have a nice linen finish, and the simple art style makes the game visually appealing without pulling focus from the core puzzle. Sprawlopolis costs about 12 US dollars, which I consider a deal for a great game you can get lots of plays out of, and that's small enough to fit in your back pocket. It also has several expansions available, which run around $4 each. I got a few mini expansions with the Kickstarter version I backed, which you can still get on Buttonshy's website, but even after a lot of plays, I haven't felt the need to add any of them in yet. This speaks to how much game is packed into the 18 core cards. The last thing I'll mention is that there's a free score tracker app for Sprolopolis available on iOS and Android. You don't need it, but it's a huge plus for me because I tend to avoid games that save up all the scoring for the end. To me, it kind of feels like when you were a kid on summer vacation and you asked one of your parents to take you out for ice cream. And they said they would if you cleaned your room when you got back. But obviously, that's just my hang up. I know most people wouldn't give it a second thought. But if you're like me, mildly allergic to endgame tallying, the app makes it easier and quicker. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at LauraWroteIt. P.S. If you want a good tongue twister, say Sprawlopolis five times fast. Or even just once. I could barely get through this segment without messing it up every single time. You've been listening to The 5 By. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on your podcast app of choice. Please consider supporting our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash 5 Games. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.